Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, Mark Trichel here today with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm excited today. I've got an opportunity to interview Ian Lample. Ian, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you so much for having me today. You got it. Glad to hear it. Well, Ian, I was just on your LinkedIn, as I mentioned before we chatted, and I've got a bio here I wanted to share with people. You are the co-founder of Lone Street, which was founded in 2013 with the mission to create a more efficient, transparent, and robust way to connect lenders and investors, as well as administer their loans. Today, hundreds of financial institutions, which includes a lot of credit unions, rely on Lone Street's turnkey automated platform to gain access to a nationwide network of lenders and investors. It also tracks their performance of their loan portfolio so that they can more profitably grow and diversify their balance sheets. From our previous conversations, I remember you saying you were involved in the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP. When we chatted about it, I didn't realize you were the Deputy Chief Counsel of that office. And I'm sure there's some things you learned from that that helped you build out what you've done at Lone Street, and maybe we can get into that. And I knew you were a lawyer. I didn't know that you started as an electrical engineer with a degree in that. So fascinating. Maybe we can touch upon that. So <laughs> you went pretty far back. I don't know if, even if I remember anymore, but thank you for that kind introduction, Mark. So yes, before starting Lone Street, I served as deputy chief counsel for what was called the Office of Financial Stability, which implemented the Trouble Asset Relief Program or TARP for the Treasury Department. And that covered all sorts of programs from the Big Bang programs to a program called the Community Development Capital Initiative sole program that credit unions could participate in. And you're correct. So the genesis of Lone Street really came out of my time at the Treasury Department, where I had the benefit of meeting with financial institutions of all sizes. So they could have been large ones like JP Morgan Chase, small credit unions, and really everything in between. And one of the things that I found quite striking was how difficult it was for financial institutions to manage the lending side of their balance sheet. And fundamentally, what I mean by that is shared credits. When there are multiple lenders in a loan, large institutions oftentimes call that syndicated lending. Credit unions commonly call that participation lending. Whatever you call it, the friction of getting into and then managing those transactions over time is quite high and resulted in those institutions doing it less than would otherwise be optimal. And I think when people looked at this problem historically, they tended to view the problem as a matching problem. It's just hard to find the right partner at the right time. Our view was that that puts the cart in front of the horse and that it wasn't so much a matching problem, but a scaling problem. And once you had the infrastructure in place to help financial institutions to share loans at any time at any amount with any partner, well, then matching becomes really easy. And so what we really focus on is how do you build infrastructure in many ways, the type of infrastructure that we take for granted in the bond market to allow for a more liquid market because liquidity 
provides for better execution, better diversification, and allows lenders to focus on what they're really good at, lending in the local market to their members without fear of hitting concentration limits and be able to manage their balance sheet more effectively. You know, one of the things, and then I'll pause for you, is oftentimes credit unions can face greater concentration issues than even a similar situated community bank just due to the membership requirements. And in my mind, we shouldn't just throw up our hands and say, well, that just means that we're forever going to be subject to these more difficult pathways. Rather, we should look for other ways of mitigating those risks. And our view is shared credits is one of the most effective ways of doing so. Yeah, that's a great point. Membership can create more concentrations. As simple as it's a farming credit union and we are farmers in a town that that's all we do, you're going to have that. We've NCUA in the past had the challenges with the medallion credit unions. So there were participations there. Obviously, some seismic things happened in that arena. It's good to see that that's all been resolved. And the statistics on participation loans show that how well they're performing, especially now that those medallion loans are no longer in those statistics and that they've rolled off. So you mentioned one thing that reminded me, there's an author, James Clear, who wrote the book Atomic Habits, which speaks to friction. And his concept is that you can improve your habits by creating friction for bad habits and removing friction for good habits. And I never looked at what Lone Street does relative to that, but that's what you've done. If I'm interpreting this right, you've created a structure which removes a lot of the friction that allows me, if I'm a seller or person B, if they're a buyer, to acquire or initiate some loans that allows me to improve my overall balance sheet. Yeah, I think that's right. So if you think about the traditional process about the way credit unions would share loans in the past, there were a few things there that were you know, incredibly manual in nature. One was that they'd always look for a single counterparty. And that single counterparty had to buy the full amount available for sale. So that immediately means that all institutions are generally only going to operate with other like-sized institutions. So for example, if I'm a billion-dollar institution and I need to move 50 to $100 million of loans at a clip, I can't sell $100 million of loans to a $100 million institution. I can only sell to other billion-dollar institutions. On the other side of the coin, if you're in a high-friction environment, if you are a $100 million institution and you need a couple million dollars worth of capital relief, you can't sell in a high-friction environment a couple million dollars to a multi-billion dollar institution. It just doesn't work. Therefore, you are limited to like-size institutions. Also, when you're selling a one-to-one transaction, people tend to renegotiate the contract every time. And that just takes time. Not that it's necessarily so expensive, but it's effort to renegotiate that contract every time. And let's face it, relationship among lenders for participation just doesn't change that much. Rights to workouts, voting, rights to proceeds, these are things that are fairly well agreed to. Even if people negotiate on the margin, it's kind of unnecessary. And so if you can strip that out, if you can strip out that negotiations and have one agreement that many people use, all of a sudden you can go from a world of having to have a single buyer to a world where you can have many buyers. And once you're in a world where many buyers, if you think about like an IPO, Could you imagine trying to get an IPO done if you had to find a single equity holder for the entire multi-billion dollar equity offering, right? It would never happen. You couldn't get an IPO off, right? So what do they do? They line up a thousand insurance companies and immediately you get your IPO off. Yet in the loan market forever, it was considered 
of course you're going to find a single counterparty. Why would you ever find more than one when yet in every other market, whether it's debt or equity, when it comes to selling bonds or selling equity, right? Then you do many, many holders. It was only in the loan market where you would say, oh, the right way to do this is to find one counterparty. It's bizarre. But in order to have many partners, you have to have a one agreement. If you think about it, in the bond market, there's something called a qualified indentured act. So the rights of bondholders are always the same, even if the covenants move. Equity holders have fiduciary rights as common holders. So these things really just are standardized and allows you to have many holders. But also the bond market and the equity market has a lot of infrastructure people take for granted. Your ownership percentage is managed by trustees and transfer agents and paying agents. You're not concerned about getting your dividend or interest payment on time in the right account. All of this is managed by these quasi-public utilities. And yet in the loan market, none of that exists. And you're dependent on the back office of the financial institution that sold it to you to manage that process of tracking ownership, reporting, remitting, and reconciling. It's just not what they do every day. It's a thing that they do once in a while, and they don't have really good tools to do it. But if you can automate those processes of what the bond market and the equities market take for granted, and you can standardize that arrangement, now you can go one to many. You've removed all that friction of transacting in the first place. You remove the friction of having many counterparties. And now all of a sudden, you can really manage your balance sheet in a much more active way. You don't have to be worried about, I need to build up a big block of loans to sell in a high friction transaction to a single counterparty. I can dollar cost average my way in. I can sell all the time. I can dollar cost average my way in as a buyer. I can buy lots of amounts from lots of different parties because the effort it takes to transact goes down, the effort to manage goes down. And now I have a much more liquid secondary market and I can manage my balance sheet as a buyer or seller or both much more effectively. Creating diversification for the buyer and diversification for the seller at the same time, because they're not keeping it all on their books. And also diversification of their buyer base, right? If you think about it, if you want to say to your ALCO committee, to your board, to your examination authorities, I have a liquidity source, I can sell loans. Well, if your liquidity source is two partners, what happens if they're out of the market one month? If you've got hundreds of institutions that have bought from you historically, that's a real liquidity source, right? You're able to execute efficiently and without concern whether the one or two of them are out of the market at any given month. Very good. And so you mentioned the regulatory authorities. One thing that credit unions have to deal with every year is a priority letter to credit unions. And this year they added, NCUA had like 11 topics, one of which was they added loan participations as a priority. I've done a podcast on that previously And I have some statistics from that. And in my opinion, it's not that NCUA views participation loans as a problem. They're creating it as a priority because it's been growing. It's really been taking off. And at the end of the year, it was about 4.7% of total loans were in loan participations. And then also another type of a loan purchase, the eligible obligations that has grown from about 1.7% to 3% of eligible obligations. And I'm sure that Loan Streets played a role in some of this growth relative to both sides of the balance sheet. And let me throw one other thing out there. When I was a regional director, I used to say, when I would go out and speak, I would say, you could put 5% of your money into just about anything. And so when I see you got 4.7% in participation loans as a percentage of loans that credit unions now have on their books, and they're performing extremely well, I think that's a good thing for the industry to see that that's what's happening at this juncture. Any thoughts relative to that? Yeah. So I think there's a number of secular trends that are only going to see this cause participations and eligible obligations to grow. So 
five, seven years ago, the participation marketplace was something like under 20 billion. Now it's over 60. It's been growing at an annual compound growth rate of over 15%. Our view is it's going to even start growing faster. And I think it's right for the NCUA to be paying attention. It's going to be a significant part of every credit union's balance sheet for the foreseeable future. And it needs to be done well and transparently because it's such an important tool that people need to be paying attention. It needs to be an effective marketplace because otherwise the credit union industry is really going to struggle. And the reason why I believe so strongly in that is I think the days of individual consumers walking into a credit union branch to take out the loan are either disappearing altogether or disappearing quickly. And that more and more consumers and small businesses are taking out loans on their phones or online. And credit unions may not be always well positioned to have the best and most engaging mobile app. That said, that loan should still probably be on a credit union balance sheet, right? It's just getting there differently. And in order for that loan to get to a credit union balance sheet, most likely credit unions are going to have to partner with technology providers, sometimes people call them fintechs, that are really origination channels. They're sourcing deal flow for credit unions with very savvy apps, through very savvy origination channels. They're going to capture some portion of that market. And the prime portion or super prime portion of what they're capturing should end up on a credit union balance sheet. It's not going to go to a hedge fund or asset manager. Their cost of capital won't enable it, but they can be very good credit union partners. On the other side of the coin, though, not every single one of those technology partners can then partner with thousands of credit unions. More likely, they're going to partner with a handful. And those handfuls are going to need to do a few things. They're going to need to enter into reasonably complex forward flow arrangements. They're going to have to have a decent-sized balance sheet in order to support some of that lending upfront. And they're going to need to monitor that fintech or technology origination channel to make sure that they're performing as agreed. But once it's in that regulatory box and on a credit union's balance sheet, that institution can then participate down to thousands of other credit unions who can take advantage of the fact that that's one potentially larger credit union is specialized in terms of understanding how to partner with the fintech, understanding those forward flow arrangements, understanding that monitoring role that they play. They're going to earn some income for that. They might get some additional gain on sales, some servicing spread. And then they're going to participate down to thousands of credit unions that probably can't partner with that fintech directly. And so if I'm right, and that's the direction of which origination is going, more and more of the credit union's balance sheets are going to be in participations, not less. I think you're right. (laughs) From the amount of potential clients and client calls I have where I can see that their credit unions are doing more and more of this to how I've recently acquired some loans that I got personally from conversations I have with my kids who are now in their early 30s, that generation doesn't get loans like my dad did and that like my mom did or like I am right now. And when the smaller credit unions have liquidity and want to maintain their local autonomy, whether that's Aberdeen, South Dakota, or somewhere in the middle of a small town in Texas, and you've got this excess liquidity, and you've got this large credit union that does have the economies of scale to make a sound loan, but also to attract people who want to invite them in to make that volume of loans. Like you said, the originators of these opportunities are only going to go to a handful of organizations. And I think it's good for credit unions that the large credit unions can do this. And obviously, you have to do it in a safe and sound manner. And that goes to the guidance that NCUA has out relative to the priority rules, the longstanding guidance. I think it came out in 07 and 08 
relative to doing uh, third-party due diligence. And Ian, from our previous conversations, I know that the systems you put in place creates ways for the credit unions to comply with what NCUA is expecting. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so I think that's right, Mark. This has to be done correctly. We don't have the opportunity to get this wrong. Credit unions need to be able to partner with fintechs. They need to do it in a safe and sound manner. And then they need to actively manage their balance sheet and allow for credit unions to purchase in a safe and sound manner. And our view, transparency is a critical feature. Being able to track loans individually, payments individually, and not just at the time of purchase, but also subsequently. How are these loans performing at a very micro level? Because loans are also going to repay and charge off in non-uniform ways. And so even if it met expectations, it's going to have this kind of lifetime behavior that can be surprising, especially as you make multiple purchases at different times from different institutions for different asset classes and being able to understand what your balance sheet looks like today. Not what it was when you bought into these loans six months ago or a year ago or two years ago. What does your balance sheet look like today? Because that helps you then actively manage your balance sheet for your next purchase. Same thing as a seller. What does your balance sheet look like today? Not what did it used to look like? And having that real-time transparency into payment level information allows you to make better informed decisions, both in terms of what has happened and what you need to do moving forward. And so our view is, and reverting back to your point about the supervisory priority, which was interesting to us, was also the NCUA highlighted the ongoing reporting aspects, right? Tracking loans independently, understanding what's going on. And in our view, that is a critical need, right? If you're not paying attention to the payment level, if you're not paying attention to individual loans, if you're trying to do things a little loose at the pool level, you're going to miss things that matter. And that's where things can really go sideways. Because look, things are going to go wrong. Not every loan is going to repay perfectly. But if you have the information, you put yourself in a position to mitigate problems, as well as to take action to improve your balance sheet. Very good. Well said. So, Ian, if uh, credit union is looking to add loans to their pool and don't currently have a relationship with Loan Street and don't currently do any either eligible obligations or purchase of loan participations, what are the first steps that a credit union like that would go into relative to reaching out to your organization to see if it's something that does fit for them? As we get into that, I'm actually going to circle back to one of the original points you made. And we talked about this idea of membership and how a field of membership today can result in surprising concentrations. And it's fascinating because if you think about the original purpose of the field of membership was it was supposed to be credit enhancing, where we all know each other and therefore it's a credit enhancement. Where today we would argue, I don't want to speak for you, that it is actually not a credit enhancement, but actually can be hamper a credit union, right? And so that in my mind is kind of a really interesting point to start with a board. If you are not currently in participations, the regulation itself requires there to be a policy. But I think a part of that policy by the board has to come into a conversation about what is the purpose of participation policy and what am I trying to achieve as a seller or buyer? And recognizing that the field of membership requirement in and of itself can be credit hampering. It's not an enhancement anymore. And so why are we putting together this policy? So let's take a step back and understand as a board how we're going to navigate managing the balance sheet of a credit union, either a selling, buying, or both to get diversification, get different assets, leverage expertise and scale of another institution, so long as I understand that credit risk. That, in my mind, is a starting point. Once we understand what we're doing there, or perhaps we have a really strong indirect auto program in our own local community 
and we're constantly scaling it up and down because we're running out of balance sheet space relative to concentration. Well, if we start participating out, well, then we can keep our, you know, whatever the foot down. down. Yes, yes. <laughs> keep lending successfully, amortize those marketing costs of those loan officers and those servicing and collection people and distribute and allow another credit union to get the benefit of your expertise in your local community. So you first have to start off, in my mind, speaking to the board, educating the board of the value of what we're trying to achieve. You have to put a policy in place. And then from there, you need to think about what is the criteria in terms of what type of loans am I looking for and what are different ways I can access those loans. Some credit unions rely on calling each other. There are other platforms like Loan Street and others where you can log in and see different types of opportunities. Most of them don't charge for you to register and log in and see deal flow. Some of them do, but it's totally worthwhile to look at a number of different types of opportunities to source deal flow. And then, of course, you have to really understand how are you going to perform the ongoing management and reporting functions, either as a seller yourself or as a buyer. And so we highly encourage people before they transact to understand the nature of the reporting they're going to receive. Because if they don't understand the reporting they're going to receive before they transact, it's going to be very difficult for them to manage their portfolio moving forward. And so you really want to make sure not just that you're able to understand the risk and return profile of the opportunity you're looking at, but also how am I going to track this over time? What are the tools that I have? And what are the tools the platform I'm working with gives me access to to understand well, I thought I was buying A. How did it perform? I thought it would be a prepayment speed of X. We ended up with Y. We thought charge-offs would be A, they ended B. Maybe they're better, maybe they're worse, maybe it's a mix. But trying to track that manually, month over month in Excel spreadsheets, is functionally impossible. You really need to have specialized software that you're working with to understand these kind of variations over time. And I highly encourage credit unions to think both in terms of what they're getting into and then how they're going to manage it and not view these things as separate concepts, but really as a whole together. And that's a real sweet spot of the product that you offer is the ability to have very detailed reports relative to what it is you own, which reminds me of some other conversations I've had with some of my experts that assist me, where we get into conversations with clients talking about what's going into a report to the board. What is it the board should know? What is it they need to know? And what is it that they want to know? And if you don't have the ability to easily put that together, it gets harder for them to understand what their risks are. So that's the official's side of it. And the other side of it is, okay, if NCUA is going to be coming in and looking to say, okay, what level of due diligence did you have relative to purchasing these loans? Having good reporting can go a long way towards NCUA being comfortable with the fact that you understand what it is you bought, the fact that you have a policy that puts appropriate guardrails on it. Yeah, I think that's right. But what's even in some ways equally fascinating, we were talking to, and I'm not going to name any of a large credit union last year, and they have a five-person analyst team dedicated to reviewing their participation program, looking at those monthly reports, looking at those Excel spreadsheets, and trying to track things. And they produce a report, and it superficially looks very professional. If anyone will look at it, they'd be like, wow, they are on top of this. They have the charts, they have the numbers. But then when you dug in, and this is what the difference between humans trying to track Excel spreadsheets versus specialized software, their prepayment speeds were wildly off. What they were reporting to the board, what they were reporting to their outcome committee, what they were reporting to their management team was just wrong. It was just inaccurate. Because doing this at scale, when you think about it, when you're buying into an auto pool, right, you'll be dealing thousands upon thousands of loans. And the idea that you're manually tracking these things off core, it's functionally impossible, right? You have to have a system 
that you're using because you can produce pretty reports that purport to have everything you need. But if the underlying data is flawed, you've got a real problem. Yes, and so sir. that is one of the fascinating things, I think, too. It's not just being able to present something in the up, yep, here was our charge off numbers, but what's your confidence that it's correct? Manual systems can work in super small situations, but I think of uh, Lucille Ball and the chocolates coming off the system where things start coming so much quicker that Lucy had to start eating half the chocolates. A third of the chocolates were eaten, a third hit the floor, and a third of them went into the box. And that's not the kind of reporting that anybody wants to have, whether it's on loan participations or in chocolates. So that's a great point. So I'm assuming as we're seeing this growth happen that every year from 2013, you've seen more buyers and sellers coming in. I've heard from clients that do purchase some loans either at Lone Street or elsewhere, that there is a lot of demand, that there's oversubscription sometimes, that their goal is to get a certain amount and they're not able to do it. So it's great to have buyers. It's great to have sellers. And I'm presuming that both of those things are going quite well at Lone Street, but that's a balancing act as well that you have to try and achieve. Yeah. So not to talk too much about Lone Street itself, Lone Street has at the time of this podcast about 1,300 financial institutions on our platform, the vast majority of which are credit unions. We do have some community banks on the platform as well. So we have, I think, around 25% of the industry by number. And we're adding about a credit union a day. So we're really a large percentage of credit unions at this point. And I think this goes back to another point we raised a moment ago, which was we tend to facilitate a one-to-many transaction versus a one-to-one. And so The traditional way of doing it, sure, you got to buy the full amount available for sale because you were individually negotiating that transaction and that has some benefits. But that means if you weren't the absolute highest bidder on the bid, right, (laughs) you don't get it at all, right? So the one thing you know when you're using the traditional process is that you are willing to pay more than anybody else, which is kind of funny because if you think again about the IPO and bond world, right, when you buy a bond, when you into an original issue bond or original issue IPO, they build a book, but everyone pays the same price. So you know that with confidence that the amount you paid was a market clearing price, not what they call an English sure. price, right? Where you're paying. So the irony is, so sure, when you win something doing the old-fashioned way, you win it and you win all of it, but that also means you're willing to pay more than anybody. And so you get that bit of that, what they call buyer's remorse, right? Sure. Where if you do a one-to-many trade, ever you know that there might be 20, 30, 40 other institutions that have agreed that that's a fair market price for that opportunity. And lots of people are buying it at the same price regardless of size, or if they know the CEO, right? They, everyone is paying the same amount. And so it gives you a lot of confidence, but it also means you may not get the full allocation that you were hoping for. Because in order to successfully build a book, you have to try to oversubscribe it a little bit. In the equities market, they call it a green shoe. The goal is to have it about perfectly, in a perfect IPO, they're 20% oversold. Like you're really trying to get that perfect level of a little bit, and then everyone gets cut back a little bit. But if a credit union is consistently selling, well, then you've done your due diligence. You know a lot about that product and it's faster your due diligence for the next transaction. But yeah, so it is hard. It is a bit of an art to try to keep the two sides balanced. Sometimes you can't help it. There's going to be more sellers or more buyers. Things can be tighter or more liquid. But if you do a one-to-many trade, as a buyer, you may not get your full order, but at least you got something. Right. And you have the confidence that other people were paying the same price for it, as opposed to knowing that if you won it, that means that you paid more than anybody else was willing to pay. Great point. So you talked about the importance of educating your board, educating your staff when they're thinking about doing this. And that reminded me of a quote, which is 
The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. And if someone is thinking that maybe that this is something they either want to do on one side or the other, the time is now because, you know, rates have gone up. Things have changed. There are people who wanted, probably should have bought hedges six months ago that didn't. But now if they buy one, it costs a lot more. And to get up and running and to educate yourself takes some time. And it's always wise, I presume you would agree with this, to do that and to do your education. If I want to start doing it in a year from now or six months from now, I should really be reaching out to someone like Lone Street or one of the other providers now to start learning about it, get the board educated, figure out what makes sense, work on the policy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'll use a different phrase. We like the phrase crawl, walk, run. Our view is you need to do the education at the board level, the management level, understand what the process is and different roles people play in the process. And then you don't have to move your entire balance sheet as a buyer, seller, or both. You can make an initial transaction, either as a sale, as a purchase, that doesn't need to change the entire look and feel of your entire balance sheet. In our view, it's get used to the process, understand what you're doing, make a small purchase, understand, look at a few monthly reports, practice integrating that into your call report, and then start jogging from there. You don't need to move the whole world and do some $100 million transaction right off the bat, even if you are a large institution. like You can start small. And we're big believers in starting small and growing the program over time. And we also think it's important, even for sophisticated large institutions that have been doing this a long time, that doing things in smaller amounts more frequently just allows them to more closely manage their program, again, on both sides of the trade, right? You're not having to take bets about time in the market. If you're doing small amounts every quarter or every month, even if it's the same amount you would have moved over the course of the year, you're unlikely to have made a massive mistake in terms of timing, right? If you're just doing it consistently, if it's a program that you're entering into where I'm always buying, I'm always selling, I'm always managing my balance sheet, you're unlikely to be put in a position where you really missed time to market, and your balance sheet's going to be better for it. Sure. That makes perfect sense. Well, any other last thoughts? Any question I should have asked you, Ian, that I didn't that you want to speak to here? Yeah. So I think there are a couple of things to pay attention to if you really haven't spent a lot of time in this market. One would be prepayment speeds. Oftentimes, credit unions, and I think this is true of all financial institutions, they tend to focus on the credit risk, where most of the transactions in the participation market happen at a premium. Some happen at a discount. But prepayment speeds are a critical factor in the performance of a participation, understanding what the expectations are there and how they've changed over time. That can drive returns for both the buyer and seller, even more so than credit risk. Like I think a lot of people think about the charge off first and the prepayment speed second. And I think prepayment speeds are a critical thing for people to understand. I think it's important for people to understand, especially in this interest rate environment, that there are a lot of floating rate opportunities and adjustable rate mortgages and understanding the difference between weighted average life and duration. And so these are important concepts that people sometimes misunderstand about how to judge risk in terms of what of a comparable asset may be. So these are, I think, also really important. Another concept that a lot of people forget is what's called delay days. And so let's just take the most basic example. So let's say you're buying loans like auto loans and people are paying and prepaying all throughout the course of the month. And so on average, the payment comes in on the 15th. Now, if you get your participation report on the first of the month, and let's say just magically you get, you know, it all works perfectly and you get your money on the second day of the month, 
that means you have about 17 days of delay days on average from your payment. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. That is a completely normal process. But understanding delay days is important because you need to take that into account when you're calculating the yield on the purchase that you're making. It's not enough just to include the prepayment expected charge off and how that affects returns, but you have this small amount of drag depending on when you get that report and payment. Is it on the second? By the way, if it's on the fifth, it's whatever it is, you should just understand what the expectation is and then include delay days in your calculations because it will affect the ultimate return that you get. And by the way, all this is sort of built in for people when they do securitization, right? Like oftentimes securitizations have like 45 days worth of delay days, like material delay days relative to what you see. The participation marketplace is actually much tighter than the securitization marketplace. But a lot of times people just kind of forget about that. They forget that there's going to be 15, 17, 20 days worth of delay days that they should build in. But it's okay. On the other side of the coin, right, they don't need to do like really operationally difficult things like Remit every day, remit every week. You can, again, save all that operation pain, remit once a month, and just add the delay days in the beginning. So I think it works both sides, right? It's like you can make things operationally efficient. We just build delay days in the front. And so there's these nuances that a lot of people don't pay attention to. If I can put a plug in, I would say if you go to our website under knowledge base, you can read lots of articles about prepayment speed and duration and delay days. We have a lot of white papers out there educating people about all these nuances that oftentimes they don't think about when they're starting a program. But it's important to get your arms around, not because these things are terribly complex, but they're just easy to forget about if you haven't spent a lot of time in this market. Fascinating. And so a seller who comes to your organization and wants to start looking at all these things and getting that standardized agreement out there that they're going to put out there for anybody who's considering buying this would be part of the education your staff would do with them relative to the different levers that play into it, such as we just discussed. Got it. We're big believers in education first. People allow them to make their own decisions, understand the risks and returns of selling, purchasing, and how to structure a transaction to result in the most operational efficiencies for both sides. Very good. Well, and Ian, going back to something we said earlier is I believe that you're right, that this is going to continue to be a growth area in financial institutions and particularly credit unions. It was great chatting with you today. If a credit union wants to, again, from either side, wants to reach out, what would be the best way for them to reach you or who should they try and reach out to? Yes. Thank you for that, Mark. It's very kind of you. They can go to our website, which is www.loan-street.com. And if they go to the contact us page or sales at loan-street.com, it's very easy to go to our website and the contact us page, and then a a loan street representative will reach out to you in response to any question you may have. Great. Ian, I want to thank you for your time today. And for those listeners out there, I appreciate your time and we look forward to seeing you or hearing you or having you hear us on With Flying Colors for our next episode. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Mark, for having me today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 